I know you you went to school at KU. Are you originally from Kansas City? Um, well, kind of, yeah. I mean, I grew up in Kansas City from middle school. And, okay. But I moved here from Wisconsin. Okay. Oh, I don't hear an accent at all. Seriously. Yeah. I did what you did that. I was like, oh. I can yeah. only, when I say Wisconsin, I don't know how to say Wisconsin unless I say Wisconsin. Right. Okay. <laughs> but I've lived here since eighth grade. And you would think I wouldn't have an accent. All right, big city, yeah, Kansas City. How you feeling? Welcome to Center Cuts, episode twelve. Today is January twenty-six. I'm your host, Patrick Spray. I remember to say it today, and we are here with Jennifer Rowe, Director of Operations for Folk Alliance International. How are you doing, Jennifer? I'm doing very well. It's good to be here. It's it's great to see you. We are zooming once again, coming to you with Chris Mary, our producer. What's up, Chris? Hello. Uh, Chris and I are seeing a lot of each other these days, actually. Um, We were talking a little bit off air, too. We like to start our segments with something about a calendar. We actually have this episode timed kind of timely, as Folk Alliance Conference this year is from February 22nd to the 25th. And so I'm sure you've got a lot on your plate right now, Jennifer, um, with that calendar. Anything you want to talk about specifically or just in general? Not to be about Folk Alliance either. Well, you know, I really don't know how to talk about anything other than Folk Alliance, so it's going to be about Folk Alliance. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we have our virtual conference this year is February 22nd through the 26th. We've expanded another day. And what I'm going to talk about is what's unique this year. Instead of it just being focused on industry, we are um, opening up the unlocked showcases or any showcases uh, through the virtual conference to a public audience. So we will have public tickets available or we do have public tickets available. Um, Right now we have a potential for over 800 hours of content, of showcase content. So that's a lot I'm a little overwhelmed with data because all I see are rows of Excel spreadsheets and, <laughs> mm. and where we're putting in the data, um, but it's from artists all over the world and um, we're super excited about the engagement and the possibility of finding new talent and we hope that people join us. Um, and I, actually another exciting thing about it is last week we announced that any money that comes in from the public ticket sales um, is actually a donation to what is called the Village Fund. Mm, I saw that. Have you, you saw that, great. And, Doesn't mean um, I understand it. <laughs> I well, saw. it's pretty simple, but it's we're raising money to provide small grants to artists and other industry um, within the folk community. And, mm-hmm. and obviously it comes out of the pandemic, but the goal is to have this be an ongoing source of um, grants available for people in need that are in our community. And so the goal, Folk Alliance has committed to $25,000 towards this. Our hope is to raise another $75,000 so that we can provide $200, $500 grants and ideally more. That's fantastic. Yeah. Now, really the pandemic we first got wind of it about a month after Folk Alliance was early last year, right? In New Orleans. Folk Alliance was in January. Yeah. We're looking back a year from now. It's in okay. January. 
I guess I always associate the conference with Valentine's Day. That's normal. Okay. It's normally, yeah. So, so this year is kind of a little behind. And did you always start on a Monday? Seems like it was no, no. Wednesday, Thursday, no. Friday, Saturday. Yes. Yeah, our conference is typically Wednesday through Sunday. Um, closing party is Sunday night, typically. But it's all online, so yeah. who knows? I know I don't want to spend a weekend sitting in front of my desk um, attending panels, so we decided to look at it that way and um, opted for Monday through Friday. Heck yeah. Well, originally it was Monday through Thursday, and we just have too much content, so it's yeah. Monday through Friday. <laughs> That's what I thought, too. It's an extra day. So you kick your thing, kick the week off on that Monday. Um, mm -hmm. Normally, conferences in the past would, I mean, of course, there were workshops all during the day, breakout sessions, meet and greets with all sorts of people, but, you know, the music started roughly, like, 5.30 at night, it seemed like, in the ballrooms at the West End yeah. or something like that, and then moving up to the after hours performances at night. Is there like a rough time frame during the day when people should tune in or be looking for this? So the rough time frame, we have our spotlight showcases. We've partnered with organizations all around the world to present these spotlight showcases. For example, Sounds Australia are doing an hour long showcase. They might actually be doing a couple. And then we have um, the UK or we have um, people, different uh, state organizations in in the United States that are doing hour long. I believe we have about 36 of those. Yeah. So those are every day from 3.30 to 6.30 and um, they're typically free at one at any given time. Um, so the day with performances starts at 3.30 and the unlock showcases, that's similar to what our private showcases are, the ones at um, in the guest bedrooms late at night. Those occur as early as 6.30 p.m. and can go all the way until the next morning at 10 a.m. So wow. I know that we have our folks in Australia, some are doing showcases from 10, um, 6 a.m. till 10 a.m. Central Time. Uh, so the goal was to really make this, if we're online, so if folks wanna participate and join us in the middle of the night, and that's also in the spirit of Folk Alliance where people are staying up all night long. Right. You know, in some ways, it probably makes it more accessible. I mean, obviously, people are having mm -hmm. to pay for airfare, for lodging, so it's cheaper for them. But the fact that they can come to you live, central time here in, in Kansas City, at least, um, means they could be doing something live, you know, eight, ten hours difference, whatever the time zone. And then just the number of artists, I think, because I think you just mentioned, you know, the the after our showcases upstairs, the, the, the private ones, those would go until maybe two in the morning, but you had a limited number of rooms, right? Yes. I, mm -hmm. I don't know what that was per floor. Usually around total about 70. Just, a lot of rooms. Yeah, yeah 70 now, rooms. Yeah. With X number of performers. Jeez. Yeah, I mean, the in-person conference, we had about 3,000 performances over four nights. Um, so when we compare that to this unlocked, um, folk unlocked, right now we're looking at a potential for 800 hours. So it's, it's still really busy Whoa. and it's a lot of people. We could at one time potentially have a hundred performances. We don't know what it's going to look like. We're allowing people to, to schedule their performance at the time that's best for them. Mm -hmm. Um, so we may have a hundred, we may have 10, uh, but ultimately it's, everything is in a 
website. <laughs> so yeah. you can look and, and hopefully filter. If you, if you know someone's name, you can type it in um, and, and find them that way. But everything is, will be hosted on a virtual platform. So one place to find it. So if people want to get more information about this, is it folkalliance.org? It's actually folk.org. Oh, folk.org, um, sorry. Folk.org, yes. And if you want to find out specifically on the public side, um, I would go to folk.org and click on resources and um, click on the village fund. So that, that's talking about the public access. And if you're specifically uh, industry, want to attend Folk Alliance or Folk Unlocked as um, an artist, agent, manager, presenter, um, click on virtual conference and you'll find out more information about that. And the biggest and most important thing, this has been a tough year, especially for our industry. We want people to come and we don't care how much they're able to pay. So we've made it a pay as you're able structure uh, with the price, high price point being 150, but you can come at zero, 25 or $75 and it's the same access. We just want you to come and That's participate. That's fantastic. And I see that progressive thinking organizations this year, again, talking with Diane Annis last week with Heart and Sun Network, I think that's the approach is we want to try to include people and meet them where they're at mm -hmm. um, rather than potentially turn someone away because they've been impacted financially, yep. which so many people have. Wow. Um, any Anything else on your calendar just coming up in the next couple of months this year? <laughs> well, I mean, no. <laughs> Everything... <laughs> this is it. You just retire no. end of February. That's it. I mean, as an organization, uh, there's a lot going on moving forward into the year. We are doing a membership drive starting in March, April. Okay. Um, so we're looking at different ways to serve our members during that time or, or just in general moving forward, making sure that um, we're providing resources. And yeah, I mean, that's, I'm hopeful. Our goal is to have an in-person conference for 2022. We will do that unless um, the state of Missouri or the city of Kansas City says that's not a possibility, um, but it's going to look different no matter what we do. Um, it's, it will be different in person. And I don't know. I mean, it's, I would love to be able to see people. I'm Sick of being in this space. So I'm really excited to actually have something on my calendar. Um, but right now, I'm just I'm just trying to get through the month right. of February. Right. Is your your whole staff is at home? By the way. Yeah, we've been at home since March 13th. Um, it was the beginning of of last year was super busy. I traveled a lot in January. Um, February and in March. In early March, I was in Washington, D.C. and in Philadelphia for a couple of meetings. Um, my boss, Angus, was, we hosted an event in Australia at the beginning of March. He flew back. Um, I think he got back the morning of the 12th or flew back on the 11th from Australia. We sat down on the 12th, sat down and like, okay, what are we going to do? Because this is looking pretty serious. And we sat down as a team on at like four o'clock on Thursday afternoon, like what do we need to do to go online? And we're pretty fortunate. We all had, primarily all of us had laptops. We had voice over IP phones. Um, we just picked up and moved to our homes. And I think I rearranged my desk situation about 
20 times <laughs> in, the last, <laughs> in the last however many months. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, I told you earlier, I'm moving to a different space. I'm really excited about that because I'm sick of living in a small apartment in the yeah. pandemic yeah. um, with two kids. <laughs> I'm, back, so I'm, I'm ready back to, to be in a different space. Back to Missouri. Uh, and that was, you know, I think, how long has it been since you all moved into your new space? Um, yeah. Chavez, what are the corners there? It's um, Cesar Chavez and Southwest Boulevard. We're right, and I-35. I mean, it's right, right there in the Crossroads area. Um, we've been there since the fall of my months are running together. I think that was the fall of 2018. I think the years are running together. I yeah. can't even tell you the difference between 2019 and 2018. I'm pretty sure we moved in <laughs> in October of 2018. And um, so it's been a couple years, but almost a year we haven't, it's been sitting empty. Right. right. Um, I'm just saying, I know we were looking forward to, I was talking with Alex about some of your finest folk first Fridays. Um, yep. We had an artist, Fritz Hutchison, lined up, and you posted Calvin there. I mean, I yeah. love, I, that was my favorite part about First Fridays. I didn't go very often yeah. to the other events, but was really excited to see what you all are going to continue to do with that space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yep. Okay. I hope to get back, if, if at all possible. I mean, our goal, our plan as an organization is to have our staff back in the office this summer, midsummer. Mm -hmm. um, depending on our comfort levels and what's going on in the world. But ideally we're back in July and ideally we're having, ideally we have the opportunity to, to host a live performance. Um, it certainly won't be what has been done um, by the record bar on that level, but, um, but we can learn by, from what other people are doing. One thing that Polk Alliance started um, this past fall is we received a grant fund um, to work on helping people safely reopen. Um, so we received a grant from Lyricist, which is funded by the Mellon Foundation. Um, so it's a two-year, well, I think it's an 18-month grant, and it's, it's um, they're just setting up best practices for opening guidelines. So we have a team that's um, called Majestic Collaborations that are working with us to, to do this. Um, they sent out a survey to presenters this last month, I think we're sending out a reminder this week, um, and we're just with them with the goal to for them to to help venues not only open as it relates to COVID, but to think long term and and looking forward, what happens when another catastrophe occurs, and how do we make sure that we're prepared for it? That in sounds the future. like a, that sounds like a great resource. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and then folk, folk alliance. I mean, we want to be able to implement some of the. Um, tools that that come out of that again it's an 18 month project so they're working on things hard right now they hope to um, issue a white paper in the next month that's more focused on um, live streaming and how to do things virtually but as we move forward it will be focused on like the physical space Wow, somebody's working. That's great. <laughs> oh, lots of people are working, and um, we have our hands in many different areas, and it's sometimes a little challenging to keep up with what we're doing, but yeah. we're busy. Yeah, that's the problem with technology. We never stop that's working. That's true. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
Welcome back to Center Cuts. We are here with Jennifer Rowe, Director of Operations with the Folk Alliance. And Jennifer, I asked you off air, you're not originally from Kansas City, but you basically have lived here since what, middle school? I've lived here for a long time since middle school. We moved here, um, this will age me, in 1986 from okay. Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Yeah. See, you can hear my accent, Wisconsin. I don't know how to say Wisconsin without that <laughs> long sound. But I, I grew up in, in Sheboygan, and, but really grew up in Kansas City. This is my home, my family, all You're, lives in Kansas City. And what was the reason, not to pry, what was the reason for the move to Kansas City? It was just a job or? My parents moved for, for work. Um, they started working with what used to be Kansas City Youth for Christ and what is currently called Youth Front. And mm. they have, it's headquartered in, I believe it's, well, it's in Kansas City. It's on the Kansas side, I suppose. Um, yeah, but they started working for them. Um, go, they went through a training and um, did work. They do camps, um, primarily what are what they're known, known for. But back in the mid 80s, they did a lot more. My parents uh, worked primarily on marriage counseling retreat for adults. That was I their see. main focus. I see. Mm -hmm. That's that's not an easy time to, I mean, even switch schools, let alone move to another state. No, in middle school? Yeah, yeah. in seventh grade. Yeah. No, it's not yeah. easy. No. Do you have siblings? I do. I'm the youngest of five. Um, yeah. I was raised as the youngest of five, but I two oldest are step brothers, and then um, I have a sister and a brother. So they, my parents got married when I was seven. Okay. Yeah. So you had someone to kind of keep an eye on you, though, moving here. You weren't like the eldest sibling trying to corral the young ones. Oh, no, no, no. I was the young one, the obnoxious young one. Okay. Yeah, that, that's okay. me. Got yeah. you. And then were you in Kansas? Yes, we moved here. And so when we moved here, the rule is if you have kids, you have to move to Johnson County, Kansas. Like, that's the only option uh -huh. is if you're going to raise your children. So my parents found out that that was the rule and they moved to Johnson County, Kansas. Um, so that's, Shawnee I, Mission schools. Shawnee Mission Schools, um, gotcha. yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And obviously I did not agree with that rule because I moved to Kansas City, Missouri and sent my kids to Missouri school. <laughs> no, you, you widened up, Jennifer, just like me. <laughs> yeah. I, I grew up over yeah. there too. Mm -hmm. Now, then um, just a couple quick questions too. I ask everybody, were you into music? I mean, I realize you've done a lot. It seems like you've done a lot of things in your life career outside of Folk Alliance before that. Mm -hmm. Were you into music as a kid? Did you? Do you want to know my whole history of musical instruments? Because this thing may take a while. We have it's, all day. Yeah. So I would say I'm not your traditional person in music. So I started... Um, in, in Sheboygan, we actually had pretty good access to, to music education in the school system. So I started with my first instrument um, being the French horn. I think I was like second or third grade. Oh. And I quit that because it was really heavy to carry the French horn a block mm -hmm. and a half to school. I mean, it's really heavy. It's a big instrument. <laughs> and then I moved on to play the violin. And um, I was excited to play the violin. My friend and I took lessons, but the person that instructed us, the, like, the first two lessons, all they did was have us like do a, 
a ball and we had to bounce it to work on the wrist movement. And as like a third or fourth grader, that was not something I was interested in doing. So I quit the violin. <laughs> and then I moved on to the oboe and I played the oboe in fourth or fifth grade and I actually did pretty well with the oboe. Um, but I think I quit that because we had a piano at home. So we all took piano lessons. We had a baby grand piano at home and um, I started taking piano lessons and I know my scales still. So okay. that's about all I know. And I quit the piano because in sixth grade, I was playing basketball and fractured my finger and you can't like play the piano very well with a fractured finger. Mm -hmm. And then we moved to Kansas City. So I never took up, took up piano lessons again. And that was my failure with music. <laughs> Did your parents make all the siblings t take piano yes, lessons? Yes, I think we all took piano lessons. And yeah, that was just part of the family. We took piano lessons. I can't think of any other of my siblings if they did other lessons. I'm pretty sure my sister played the clarinet. Man, I should know that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But we all took piano lessons. Mom um, and dad play? Your parents play? No, my parents didn't play. My grandma played the violin. Um, so when we were kids, whenever they came to visit, we would all gather around the piano. She'd either play the piano. She played the piano and the violin. We'd sing together. Um, singing was was what we all did as well. I was in choir, um, either church choir, school choir. My mom sang solos in front of the church. My brother sang solos. I was wow. way too shy to sing in front of anyone. Um, yeah, but wow. singing was, was the most common. What was the, were you listening to music at home? Were you into stuff on so the radio? I grew up in a very sheltered family and mm. we were not allowed to listen to that secular music. <laughs> so, I was gonna, I was wondering. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I lived in Wisconsin, my um, cousins lived not very far from us. And if we, you know, MTV came out and we would go to their house to listen to that. But there was, you know, we certainly didn't have that in our house. And so when I think of music, I actually have a lot of memories of my cousin's family and um, going to their home. My uncle was um, a collector of records. And so I visualize him, he, they have this one room that was his record room. And I would see him on the floor, crisscrossed on the floor, just going through records and constantly listening to records. Thousands, mm -hmm. thousands. Mm -hmm. I think he passed away um, maybe about 10 years ago and my cousin still has those records. And I've heard up to like 50 to 60,000 records. Wow. It's insane, every genre. Um, wow. every genre possible. Um, but yeah, so that's, he would catalog them and then he would sell them. And so it was like this whole process of, of records. And I don't, I don't know what they're going to do with all those records, but, was, but it's was that impressive. Was that frowned upon for you to, you know, turn your ear as you walk by the <laughs> music room or? I don't know. No, I don't, not at all. Um, it was, you know, my siblings were older, and so they were were certainly listening to um, secular music. It was, mm -hmm. you know, I was younger, and I just listened to whatever my parents listened to. Mm -hmm. um, but when we moved to Kansas City, and it's kind of funny because we moved to Kansas City for my parents to work for a church organization, but that's when they stopped putting restrictions on us. So at that point, 
um, my, we really could listen to anything. And so it's, it's really this bizarre point where in, in Wisconsin, we had so many limitations. And then in Kansas City, it was, I, I don't know, maybe they were just trying to survive. Yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you're, you're fighting your older yeah. siblings too i'm sure yeah. you, you just warm down that's right yeah i mean actually i was the easy child i was the kid that always went to bed because i was tired i you know i didn't stay up late and um yeah but my sister was the one that would would leave to go meet up with her friends and would leave at 11 p.m or midnight and yeah that was that was, it. That was it. To, go, to go to the rock show exactly yeah now <laughs> So I know that you went to University of Kansas. Mm -hmm. I want to say, did you study like political science or something? Yes, I did. I like that. I was a poli-sci major. Okay, yes. poli-sci mm -hmm. major. And then any exposure to music there? I mean, come on, in Lawrence? Well, like KU, um, I mean, sure. It's, you know, when I think of my college years all I think about is music like if I hear a song from the mid 90s it completely takes me back to to college um, but that was all the music from Seattle out of Seattle that was yeah, that's my yeah that's when frankly when I hear that music I'm like yes that's it <laughs> like, so I love it <laughs> I guess moving to Kansas City just kicked those doors right down oh yeah definitely on <laughs> um and then that led you to Washington DC. Yep. Mm -hmm. Working for a senator? Yes, I did. I worked for a senator in DC. I so um my senior semester of college, um, I did an internship out in, in DC. There was a whole internship program through KU. So my inter internship was with the majority leader of the Senate, and at that time was Senator Bob Dole from Kansas. Mm. And I had, um, as an intern, the best view from an office that I've ever had in my entire career. Um, it was, my view was in the Capitol building. I, me, along with like four or five other interns were scrunched in front of this window, and we looked over the mall. So my view was of the Washington Monument. Nice. It was Beautiful, beautiful sunsets, um, a great, a great opportunity and experience. Um, I don't know, I was, you know, thinking, especially after the incidents that have occurred this, this past month, I was just reminiscing about my time working in that building. And, and it was before we all had computers. So I'm not exactly sure what I did as an intern because we had one computer for like four or five of us. <laughs> I think I walked around the Capitol building and gave tours quite a bit um, and took papers from the Capitol to the Senate office building. I, I walked a lot. I think that was what interns did was we just like took papers from one place to the next. Um, but yeah, that was a, a really great experience. And um, I worked then on his presidential campaign, which was in the 1996 presidential campaign, which he lost. Mm -hmm. Obviously, at least I, at least I hope it's obvious that y'all know well enough that he was not I, I president. Um, good job. That's right. <laughs> I it's remember, you. Yeah, you got that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was the fun thing um, is that he, you know, I was 21 at the time. I was quite young. And the, there are two girls that worked in the front office and they always called me by Jenny because that was when Forrest Gump came out. And so he was convinced that my name was Jenny and no one called me Jenny. Like, 
I'm either Jen or Jennifer. Only my brothers call me Jenny and it was to like make me mad. And so mm-hmm. here, Senator Dole was calling me Jenny. And I'm like, how do you tell a Senator to stop calling you by like the name that you hate the most? <laughs> um, yeah, but it was, it was fun. And then you didn't I call ended Bobby? up, no, no, but I was really good at doing his signature because that was also like what? something into <laughs> I could make a Bob Dole signature really well. Man. Yeah. You could have been like, had nuclear codes or something there. Well, things he didn't become things have gone the other so. way. Jeez. <laughs> it's pretty good. I'm dirty. glad because I think anyone that ends up in the White House, um, from my understanding, you know, they all have end up with lawyers and um, probably paying a lot of legal bills. So it's probably for the best. Because, uh, <laughs> but after he lost, um, I, I was unemployed and I hung out in his office and volunteered. And then um, he helped me get my next job, which was at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Um, and I worked, there was one of the commissioners who the commission, it's, it's a federal agency and has um, five commissioners, three from the current, like the, the executive branch party and then two from the other party. So I worked for the Republican commissioner um, and did and I was technically worked under the Clinton in the Clinton administration as a Schedule C appointee in that administration, and then I worked for an agricultural lobbyist. Now you weren't totally different from what yeah. I'm doing yeah, now. Wow. <laughs> you weren't actually trading, right? No, 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 no. So it's a regulatory agency that regulates the futures industry. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even tell you what a future is. That's not true. I could tell you what a future <laughs> is, but. <laughs> I couldn't like when I first started that job. I certainly couldn't tell right. you what it was. Um, Were you excited about that? I mean, that's different than you know working in government, I guess. Well, it is. I was working in government. It was a it was a political job. Um, so the the person I worked for was a commissioner, and it was um, it was he was appointed by the president, and so it was all about relationships and um and working there was one time i went to a hearing on capitol hill um when there was a stock market issues with futures and um the federal chairman alan greenspan testified and i decided i was the one that wanted to go and i was basically was needed to not be present but i ended up behind him on camera for the entire like duration of that hearing which i did find on youtube about a year ago so here i am behind i had to go to the bathroom like through most of it it was awful i was was gonna say you weren't like you weren't like president trump's head head nodder back there just like you know yep Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) it's a different different life and then so the commissioner that i worked with um he led the agriculture committee within the cf the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. And then that's how I ended up working for a lobbyist regarding agricultural issues. And that was my last job in DC. What's that time, your total time out there? Just six, just six years. I moved right oh after 9-11. Um, I, I was there from 1996, January of 96 through um, December of 2001. Okay. Okay. And then moved back to Kansas City. Yep. 2000, 2001? Yeah. Right after 9-11. Oh, 
Understood. Well, I've got to believe though, as you you know just mentioned that the relationship piece though, I feel like that's something very necessary that is is why you where, where you are today, Jennifer. I mean, you you're able to connect people and make people feel comfortable at ease, and also tell them what they need to know. I think in a very firm and positive way. So I'm imagining that was really actually valuable experience for you, even though it's a very different <laughs> role. You're in now. So well, it is. A, it's, it's interesting, actually, because now my role, and I had other jobs between then and where I am now, but in my current position, I actually am um, going back to my DC roots. I've had the opportunity to do um, advocacy work for arts and culture uh, for the last few years. I'm Folk Alliance is involved with Mer American for the Arts, and um, right now I'm currently um, on some legislative panel planning committees um, where we're uh, putting together issue briefs. I am very silent on those calls because I have very little expertise compared to the other people that are participating, but it's, it's really fun for me to um, be exposed again to the legislative side of arts and culture, especially as we're going through a pandemic and as we're looking at how Congress is um, coming up with relief packages or our president is and, you know, what we're going to do as we move forward for recovery. Uh, so it's been exciting. I've been on Capitol Hill for two years, um, the last couple of years and uh, last March, I was supposed to be on Capitol Hill, um, but that was canceled because of mm. the pandemic and mm -hmm. my job, um, I'm currently a state captain for Kansas. So my job was to coordinate all the meetings with um, our legislative leaders in DC. And yeah, I mean, this year it's gonna be different. I'm, I still have that position. I probably won't next year since I'm moving back to Missouri, but um, it's been really interesting to be on the other side of, of the table and to, um, to consider, you know, what my knowledge from way back in the 90s and early O's and uh, be able to use that for what I'm doing right now from the advocacy perspective. Let's put you to work in Missouri. I mean, yeah. in Missouri, yeah. that's, a, that's another conversation for another day. Well, I don't want to, I do want to get to where you are now, but just one last thing. So what led you to uh, political science? Like what was the, was it you um, wanted to be involved in policymaking or... I cannot remember exactly, but I'm pretty confident it was a class I took and really loved it. And then mm -hmm. um, I had to declare a major and that was the one thing that I found interesting. So I love, uh, one of my favorite classes in political science was game theory. I love um, just how you consider how people make decisions and um, that's what I like about politics. I'm, I am so far removed. I mean, all of us, are not as removed right now because of all of things that have happened in the last four years. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I'm, I'm certainly more engaged than I uh, now than I was 10 years ago. But when I moved back to Kansas City, I had so little interest in politics and it was completely removed from what was mm. happening. Mm -hmm. um, and then frankly, my personal views have shifted drastically since I worked in politics. Right. Um, Right. Nah. Okay. okay. Hopefully for good. I think it's for good. But <laughs> I have I have sure. so many questions about capital, a bunch of things, but it's not really for <laughs> good. What about, it's what good about game theory, Chris? It's, it's, That's good what we need to know. it's good podcast game conversation, theory. but 
I don't know. Yeah. When you say game theory, you're talking about like board games? You're talking about just strategy? No. It's strategy about how people make decisions. Um, it's, it's like the whole prison um, theory where you give uh, one prisoner this and another prisoner that or the incentive to do this based on what actions they think another prisoner is going to do. So it's that whole, it's basically manipulation. Wow. <laughs> how do you manipulate or someone? Game game theory yeah. a game someone to to get the where you want to be um this is i i would have to go back and read yeah. my textbooks because it's been a long time since i've taken right. that class um, don't don't we all do that as parents school teachers that's true i think i'm very familiar yeah. with the concept yeah. <laughs> I think okay. we all are very familiar even this, with your 12 year old dog <laughs> yeah, yeah right this jacket don't keep me warm no this jacket don't keep me warm it's nothing like your arms no but it's not like it used to do Um, and my, my question is, and this totally does not have to be on the, like something we share on the podcast. This is just my brain won't stop thinking about it. So you worked in the Capitol. How, how does that, um, like everything that happened on the 6th, like how does that compute in your brain as someone who actually worked in that building? Well, I mean, my first initial response is, how in the world did it happen? Right. I mean, when I worked there, it was before 9-11 and there was security to get into the building and you, you know, it, was, it wasn't easy. And of course, after 9-11, everything became more challenging. And um, I, it's sad. It, it, yeah. it saddened me greatly. And when I saw the images of people in statuary, statu statuary, statutory hall, Statuary Hall. I forget the name of it. I think it's Statuary. Um, it, statuary Hall. It just brought back memories of, yeah. of walking through there and really being in awe of who, of the building and the people in that space. Um, yeah. And to see people on the, you know, Pelosi's spot, I, I brings me back to when I was uh, first moved to DC in 1996, I had the honor of um, attending a State of the Union while standing on the House floor. And that was when, when President Clinton gave his State of the Union. And that was incredible. And it was in the House of Representatives with all the congressional leaders and all the judges. And it was just amazing. I had just moved to DC two weeks beforehand. I remember exactly what I was wearing. Um, and it's like, this is a place where business and or where government is operating. And yeah, it made me emotional, probably. Yeah. <laughs> probably, emo I mean, every, it made a lot of us emotional. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, but you've got the connection, Jennifer. You, you've been in that, I don't want to say it's like a, a sacred space, but no. 
It's what it yeah. sounds like, you know? Yeah. yeah. Just when they it. were showing the police officer that was directing people away from the Senate floor, I was looking at the marble staircase. I'm like, I remember walking up that marble staircase. And, yeah. you know, I, I think I know where he is right now. And of course, I was probably completely wrong and yeah. probably don't remember as much as what I think I remember of the layout <laughs> of the building. My, my yeah. other question, and this is the one that's kind of not inflammatory, but is a question that was posed a thousand times on CNN and, and MSNBC. And I was just like, I don't know how accurate that is. So I wanted to ask somebody that actually has knowledge of the building. Do, could they just walk around and figure out where they, where they needed to go? Or do, would they have to have some sort of like inside knowledge of the space in order to get to those places? Well, to get to the main, well, to you're get talking to, about like, like the speaker office? To get like Pelosi's office and all that kind of stuff? Um, I don't think it's easy to get to most of the leadership offices. Those tend to be complicated. I mean, the issue with, with any of those old buildings is that they're made up, every office is made up of all these smaller rooms. And so it's like a hallway office, office, office. And so the, the thing though, is that many of those offices have exterior doors to the hallways. So you may just walk into one door that leads you into to another, so it's it's complicated, but I could also see where people just walk um, around and figure it out. Will walk around and randomly end up in those spaces. I mean, certainly like, the majority oh, leader's yeah. office for the Senate, it wouldn't be difficult to find that one at all. Yeah, I did. Um, it just seemed kind of like a, and I I don't watch the news, but I've been watching the news a lot lately because of everything that was happening. But like some of that stuff, I'm like, I feel like if there was that many people in the building just walking around, they'd communicate with each other and be like, it's not over there. It's not this one. It's not that one. Like, you know, just keep walking around and figure it out. Yeah. I've been there for yep. so long. Like, yeah. I totally had time to walk around. So, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I just, I had that pop in my brain almost immediately because that's like one of those ones that they just kept bringing up on the news. And I'm like, I feel like people could figure it out. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Wow. Probably. Well, um, so let's, okay, so coming back to Kansas City in 2001, I know you mentioned, maybe I've heard that, I, I think you worked with people with disabilities for a bit, maybe Megan had told yeah. me that, your daughter had told me that, and then I think you also started a business helping small businesses, is that right? I did. You've got it right. You did your homework. So well, um, I first moved back to Kansas City in a did a temp job for a while um and then I was paid full-time for that eventually and then um I stopped that at age 30 I quit and decided to I didn't like my boss she was really mean <laughs> so I quit for that you. job I really I know it was a big thing um and so I started working for myself as a case manager for individuals with disabilities when I was age 19 and again the youngest of five my parents decided that they just really missed kids. Um, so when I was 19, they started doing foster care for individuals with disabilities and mm. ended up adopting um, my brother, David, and my brother, Daniel. David was four and Daniel was nine mm. um, when they adopted them. And so my parents have been providing, and then they eventually adopted a young boy named Walter when he was seven and David and Walter are the same age. Um, and they're all in their thirties now. I wow. Think. So it was a long time ago. Um, wow. 
So that's where my exposure came and um, understanding the system. I worked, I was a case manager for some of my brothers. My parents also did foster care for many kids as well. Um, it was usually six total between the two, three adoptive boys and then three foster boys, but probably a total of like five or six foster boys. Mm -hmm. And we're still, there's still two, two of the boys that are um, actively a part of our family still. Um, but I had a caseload of, of people from all over Johnson County, and um, I worked with them, mainly adults, but also some children. Um, and my job was to help facilitate services. So like with children, I would attend their IEP meetings and um, advocate for the child to make sure that the school was, was doing what was needed um, for them to have the, the best education possible. Mm. Um, as adults, it was making sure if they were eligible for Section 8 housing to, to fill out the application when that was open or to, to get them whatever type of care that they needed. It was, my job was to help facilitate that. Um, so that was done ba basically when Megan, all through her grade school, mm -hmm. I did that. Um, and then at some point, my friend Tracy and I decided, she came to me with an idea of starting a small business to support small businesses. Um, she said that she had a lot of friends that would say, hey, I just need someone to help with this or help with that. So we opened a business to do administrative work for people. Um, so we started by, it ended up being a lot of book work. We did a lot of bookkeeping um, for people, but we did everything from planning small events to, um, to helping with their social media. And so we had several clients to the point where um, I ended up quitting case management and doing Keter Rose, what it was called full time. Um, and one of our clients was Folk Alliance. So Folk Alliance hired Keter Rowe to do um, administrative work when they first moved here to Kansas City in 2013. We helped them move to Kansas City. Um, we helped them hire their first employee, Jared Rivers, um, when, when they moved to Kansas City. So that was in 2013. We met with Lewis Myers, who uh, we met him in 2012. And, um, and then when Angus, our current executive director, came on board in 2014, the next year, I knew that I didn't want to do with the small business. It was just too much. It was, I had, basically I was running like several different businesses at one time from a real estate company, someone that was a developing um, buildings to a mosquito company to a design firm to folk alliance it's like all these different businesses in my head i just wanted to focus on one so when angus wanted to expand the staff he offered me um, a full-time job and it was good timing and um, truthfully i've never worked so hard so <laughs> i'm not sure if i made the right decision <laughs> oh that's great, that's great no i love it i'm really glad i did and so i've been full-time since september of 2014. you are i mean i i knew that little this the i just knew the surface um mm -hmm. i really appreciate you taking the time and now i'm getting all the connected dots i'm curious now my questions are do you think megan has been inspired or you know, to work with people with disabilities now? She is right now. She's working. That's her job. So she's actually yeah. working for my parents because my parents do own an agency. And um, so. Sure. Yeah. From your parents to their granddaughter. 
mm-hmm. um, and just full disclosure for our audience, I, again, I, I've known Jennifer as a parent when I was a school teacher for her eldest daughter, Megan, when she started in sixth grade. Um, and then, and then the connection with Folk Alliance now comes quick. come to Kansas City? I don't know if I know that story. How did that happen? Yeah. So Lewis, um, they made a decision to move Polk Alliance to Kansas City. Um, it was either in 2011 or 2012. And when they were looking for office space in 2012, that's when um, when I was introduced to Lewis because okay. he was looking for space in the building where I was officing and he saw us on like the list of other tenants in that building and he set up a meeting. Oh, really? So that's, really? that's how I met him. Mm-hmm. Why? That's, wow. Why Kansas yep. City? So they had a couple, um, and I, the story that I am told is there, there are a couple different reasons. Um, Memphis, I guess, in the state of Tennessee wasn't, or maybe Memphis specifically, wasn't really invested in Folk Alliance International as an organization, as a community. They held their event there for years, but there wasn't much um, engagement within the community. And when they were looking for a new place to host the conference, they also decided that they wanted to move the organization to that same space. So there are other cities that were final in the final um, finals for that, but Kansas City ended up leading and a lot of that was because there were already membership base in Kansas City, but not members in Kansas City. So we mm-hmm. had a few members, like Betsy Ellis, for example, has been a member of Folk Alliance for years. Mm-hmm. And there are people in Betsy's community um, that would be excellent members to, for Folk Alliance, but they had no idea who Folk Alliance is, um, what our organization, who we are, who we, um, so it was a great opportunity to grow our membership base here um, because there is a, a music community and and it was there was growth already at that point. Um, so yeah, and then and, and it was affordable, frankly. It's affordable to be in Kansas City. The rates at the hotel is they're less expensive than where you would get them in Austin or Nashville or any mm-hmm. other music city. Um, and we're smack dab in the middle of the country, I, but we're not that great for international travel. That's for sure. <laughs> that, oh, KCI. <laughs> I'm sure that's Maybe someday. Maybe someday. Right. Well, um, that's, again, that's fascinating. I, 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 it makes me proud, first of all, that Lewis was interested in Kansas City, but yep. I also just feel like you, you definitely have tapped into something here, you know, mentioning Betsy's name, for example. I had no idea what it was. I remember I read a couple times in the newspaper about this organization. 
I read a couple times about a conference. I remember that year Graham Nash, I think was mm -hmm. doing a keynote speech. I wanted to take my dad and I was probably busy grading papers. And then I think Megan had brought in like a, I probably still have it, a magnet or a, or a pin. And it, there was like a coupon or something like, you know, $5 mm -hmm. off admission or something. And she's like, Mr. Spray, you got to come do this. And I'm like, oh, I need to. And then right about that time, like two years later, I went to the first, my first experience for the conference and was just floored. What was your first, what year was that? 2018 was my first year. I, okay. That's the only one I've ever, that's the one I've ever been, been able to go to. I didn't go to Canada and I didn't go to New Orleans. Okay. Um, but when I see, you know, again, I think a lot of people, they have this idea of folk in their mind of no offense, everyone, a, a white dude on the guitar. That, that's not, that's not what I saw at all. And that's not what I heard at all. It was just every kind of sound from yeah. all over the world. And I thought, Kansas City's hosting this. How come everybody doesn't know about this? And of course, a lot of people did know about it. That's why it's been so successful and packed. Um, yeah. I always heard great things about it from the MMF crew. They would always be like those nights in the hotel room are, are so fun. Um, yeah. Little show. Were you one of the people that were sneaking into the hotel rooms late at night? <laughs> no, they did. I... They did tell me though that they could they could uh, uh, get me a get me a pass if I needed one. But that was okay. that was the the last year that it was in town. That's twenty eighteen. Because then it went to New Orleans, year. right? We went up to Montreal. Montreal, Montreal okay. and then New Orleans. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Tell us, can you tell the audience too a little bit about just the mission of Folk Alliance I, or yeah. maybe a broader view? I think a lot of people say, it's just that, it's that those four days of shows. I'm like, no, 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 no. There's a whole lot more. So we are a 30 plus year organization. We started in 1989 um, with a group of people who came together in Malibu, 130 folks from all over North America that had a passion for um, folk music. And um, connecting with each other. So um, the goal, the, the mission of Folk Alliance is to present, preserve, and promote folk music. And, um, and we do that primarily, like the biggest thing that we do is our conference annually. But there are other ways throughout the year that we serve our membership as well, um, that we are a 365-day organization. Granted, a lot of those 365 days are focused on the four or five days of the conference planning part, um, but but we are out in the community and, um, you know, a lot of what we've done over the last seven years is, is really expand on the international aspect of our organization and truly having that be a part of what we do. So folk music that you hear in, in the Ozarks is going to be different than the folk music that you hear in Estonia and understanding what those nuances are and realizing that um, music is, is different for all different cultures and, and we can come together and be uh, a place where community gathers and where you can be inspired as an artist by other artists from either in your neighborhood or across the world and just those connecting, um, connecting places within, within the conference. And, and now, you know, the, the, certainly the benefit of being virtual is that connecting is different, but also um, it makes it easier in other ways to connect with people from all over the world. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been really fun to watch our organization grow. Um, when I started in 2013, I mean, just looking at, at a financial snapshot of us, we've, we've doubled financially and now we've decreased. Mm -hmm that as well with this pandemic year. <laughs> so we've gone back down. <laughs> but, um, mm -hmm. 
but it's you know what's what's really been fun to see is um with lewis myers i worked with him lewis is is one of the founding members of south by southwest in austin and he did an amazing job of putting um folk alliance in a in a really solid foundation and building up our financial reserves and um making the conference a steady place and what we've been able to do because of that foundation is to grow um, and have intentional growth over the last seven years and to the point where although this year is tough um, this fiscal year with the pandemic is um, you know we're, we're seeing our revenue cut in half it's we can afford it because um, um, of the stability that we have and so we're very fortunate for that and um, are fortunate to have the support that we have. And, um, and you know, next year is gonna be tough too, but we've, we've been fortunate that we actually anticipate more revenue this year than we initially thought, which means that we can take more risk next year. Um, so if, you know, Lord willing, we have an in-person conference, it may be small, it may not be the same. It may be a hybrid situation. I don't know what a hybrid conference looks like. I don't know what a virtual and in-person conference will mean. Um, and frankly, it sounds expensive, but <laughs> but um, but hopefully that's what we, we can do. So people cannot gather, you know, if, if only people from the US can come to our conference in 2022, um, hopefully we can find ways to still engage people from outside of, of the United States to participate. We had 40 some countries in New Orleans. Yeah, anyway. I mean, and that's a whole process in itself for, for international artists coming in here, whether mm -hmm. it's visas, clearance, all those different kinds of things. Yeah. Um, you touched on some really great points though too, Jennifer. I feel like I see that international flavor and in what you're trying to do, again, represented in the styles of music that I'm hearing. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the group I met walking in in 20, is it Cunao, C-U-N-A-O, with a little sueño? Um, yeah. All Spanish speakers. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, walking into a couple of the ballrooms, there was somebody, except from like Eastern Europe, Estonia, another, mm -hmm. you know, of course, obviously right here in Kansas City, Ensemble America representing. And I just, it just blew my mind. Like, that's not what I think of folk music. And I also think yeah. that I've seen an effort before the pandemic, for sure, on, on Folk Alliance's part to represent indigenous uh, yeah music and people here in, in, in the United States and, and make sure that we're showing our traditions and our roots, uh, no matter how much they've been suppressed, actually. And I think, that's, I think that's really special, the inclusiveness and the diversity that you're trying in a very genuine way. Uh, I think people wanna support you. Also, I wanna say like during the year, there were conferences around the country, like regional, yeah. Um, like folk, FOKL, or like, um, it was like one in the Midwest. These are all in my calendar. For oh, yes, I can give you all information. But um, you just mentioned the indigenous aspect. And I, I failed to, we, we like to start our meetings um, doing land acknowledgement. And so I should have acknowledged that um, in Kansas City, we are on the traditional lands of the Kansas, Osage, Kickapoo, and Ocheche Chicoan nations, and just acknowledge that that's where we are here. Um, mm -hmm. Folk Alliance, as an organization, has been honored to provide space for um, the International Indigenous Music Summit, and that was held for the first time in Montreal in 2018, and then they hold, held another summit 
in 2019. Um, so we, it, it's amazing they brought people from all over the world, indigenous communities from um, Australia to Canada, the US and other places. So that was, it's really exciting to, to see the progression of that. And, and then those communities learning about Folk Alliance and hopefully we can maintain those um, relationships. But as far as the regions, yeah, Folk Alliance has five regions um, that they are their own nonprofit organization. Um, they have they're run by volunteer boards, and they each do their own version of a conference. Um, NERFA, which is the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance, is our largest. Um, their annual conference is usually around 800 people, and it takes place in Connecticut. All of them, all these conferences were canceled this past year um, because of the pandemic, and as was everything. Um, then we have the Southeast region, which um, was in Chattanooga for the last couple of years. I, they were in North Carolina before that, and I can completely see them going back to North Carolina. Um, the sure. far west region, well, farm, which is the Midwest. Farm, is, I, it's, that one moves around um, every couple of years. It was in Rapid City, Michigan for a couple of years, and I forget where they were supposed to be this past year. Um, and then we have the Southwest region, which is in Austin, and then Far West, which is our West Coast. They also move up and down the West Coast. Um, they were in the Los Angeles region most recently, and I cannot recall where they're supposed to be mm. this last year. You mentioned, so they're, they're not affiliated with Focal Alliance They are. We oh. have a we have affiliate agreements with all of them. Um, okay. We are often considered the mothership, but they are their own nonprofit. They run their own conferences and um, plan it. We try to be there for support for them. Um, we, we help them, for example, manage performing rights um, organization. So we will bundle that together so we have a better price to pay for ASCAP and BMI. Uh, we have annual conference or excuse me, and annual retreats with the, the leaders of each of those organizations. So we are in communication. We had, um, we helped facilitate hotel contracts this past year with, with our um, Southeast region because of the pandemic and when they had to cancel things. So, you know, I, I certainly helped participate in that and we'll step in and Jared on our team is the main liaison with them. Um, with our regions, but yeah, okay. it's a great and group our, of people. I remember that NERFA, SURFA, the acronym yeah, coming back. Um, yeah. And I, I guess I just maybe like to wrap this part up too by saying, I think for a lot of people, their first time or your first time attending the conference, it, it's, you know, it's music, right? You're, you, mm -hmm. you, you're there to see countless numbers of amazing artists, but actually I realized that the last night, <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning that no, this is a networking opportunity is what this yeah. is. This is a chance because we were with, working with Calvin Arsini at the time. This is our chance to, you know, be looking for booking agents, be looking for promoters, managers, uh, like you just mentioned, like sync license opportunity, all of that stuff. And I feel like there's so many great resources there, conversations at the conferences. I'm imagining they happen at, at the regional conferences as well. You're just mm -hmm. connected dots for artists to, to meet them where they're at, to get them where they need to go or try to help them point them in the right direction. Like here's someone you should talk to or you know, check out this resource. I mean, would you say that's really the, 
that's absolutely the goal of our conference is to help facilitate those connections. And um, I mean, music, when, when the conference first started in 1989, 1990, showcases were not a part of the conference. Uh, I think it didn't have, maybe it happened in the second year, but it wasn't about showcase performances that um, obviously is a huge part of it right now, but it is, it's more about that networking, you know, where we have panels during the day where you're, um, where you have the opportunity to learn and to grow as an individual. We consider people, most of the people that um, are part of Folk Alliance are entrepreneurs, especially our artists. Yeah. They are running a small business. And so when we're, communicating with them and when they're meeting us at the conference, we have to look at it from that perspective. Like what, what do you need to know as a small business owner? It's like, you know, all industries have conferences. If you have a dental conference, they're learning about different products and mm -hmm. similar here, we're, we're a folk music conference and you're learning about different opportunities and different ways to connect with each other. Um, it's hopefully a place to be inspired. If you're Calvin Arsenia and you're meeting Rami Hassan, who I know they worked with together. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's like both of them can, can um, hopefully inspire each other. And, and then also, you know, our artists have the opportunity to figure out how do we share audiences with, the, which, with each other? Like mm -hmm. you have a fan base in Kansas City and I eventually want to come to Kansas City. How can you help me? Um, make entrance into this area, I, you know, I'll help you come play in Massachusetts because that's a really good area for you to, to start touring. So it's, mm -hmm. it's definitely about networking. Um, that's where, where most people uh, will succeed. I mean, if, if they, it's also, you have to be pretty intentional when you come to the conference. I yeah. think it's, it's a huge beast and I imagine it's overwhelming as an attendee. Um, I think where people go wrong is by doing too, especially as artists, by probably doing too many showcases and not um, and not actually taking in the other opportunities during the day. Yeah, the the intentional piece there is very important, and I think Calvin has definitely come to understand that. Aaron McGrain, you know, made it clear mm -hmm. to me my first year, my only year, when they had a special room um, with making movies yeah. in Ensemble America, like. We're going to even have even shorter sets because we want to give everybody about 10 minutes here at the end to go talk to people, go make that connection. And I, I just feel, yeah. Jennifer, too, you, you're uniquely qualified, actually, to be giving people advice. I'm just thinking about helping small businesses that you've done before. Um, it, it's actually a really natural fit for you. So thanks. <laughs> thanks for doing what you do.
Welcome back to Center Cuts. We are still here with Jennifer Rowe, Director of Operations from Folk Alliance. Chris, you still breathing over there? I'm breathing. <laughs> Just checking. Um, we like to talk about good things in Kansas City. And of course, we can talk about the Chiefs right now. <clears throat> um, anything that endears you to our lovely city, Jennifer? Or it doesn't have to be music related. Anything you want to talk about? Well, yeah, you know, um, I do like Kansas City a lot. And I, I moved back to Kansas City primarily because my family's in Kansas City. And so it's nice to be close to home. Now, granted, in this pandemic time, I really miss my family, even though they're close to home. I don't get to see them like I used to. Um, but I don't know if you knew this, but uh, when I moved, I moved back to Kansas City, Missouri, so that my daughter could attend Academy Lafayette, which is where you taught school for a while. And I ended up moving downtown. So I lived in downtown Kansas City at 12th and Grand for five years with a five-year-old. And we would um, ride her bicycle downtown and people would just look at us strangely when a five-year-old was riding <laughs> a bike in, in um, mm -hmm. the downtown area. So I, I really enjoyed being down there. It was, um, we moved there right before the Sprint Center opened, um, right before Cosentino's opened. The, is that the name of the grocery store down, yeah. downtown? Mm -hmm. And like my whole thing of being down there is that I had to walk to the grocery store. I wasn't allowed to um, drive. Like that was my own rule. Of course, granted, because I worked in Johnson County, I would often stop in the Johnson County grocery store so I wouldn't have to walk <laughs> to uh -huh. downtown. So I love, I do love the city. I, um, I love the old buildings. I love what um, the Crossroads District has done with First Fridays. And I remember when that first started out and things have, it's just exploded and that area has exploded. And it's, it's been interesting to see the urban development of Kansas City. Um, there are a lot of areas where we where improvement is needed and how how things are being done as far as gentrification. Um, so I do worry about about that, but um, acknowledging that I've also benefited from that um, by being able to move to downtown. Um, but it was when I moved down there, I think. Maybe it was like ten to fifteen thousand people that live there. Um, it's been many years now since it's been eight eight years since I lived down there. Um, mm. But I love Kansas City. I just uh, I live in the Kansas side Kansas side now. I'm about to move back to the Missouri side near seventy near Gregory um, over by the Oak Street campus, and I'm oh, really thrilled. Great neighborhood. I'm sorry. What's, what's yeah. the, that's a great neighborhood. Was Folk Alliance? offices weren't, weren't those down in city market at that they time? were in the city market yep mm -hmm. so you could walk i didn't no um i had moved by the time i don't i didn't live down there when folk alliance okay. mm -hmm. was down there um because i moved i have no idea when they moved yeah. <laughs> it, was in, it was like 2012 and so folk alliance moved in 2013 yeah. um so it's it's been i never overlapped but yeah we were in the river market at this in delaware you know, we were there when they were building the streetcar, and um, it's exciting to see that. I'm, I participated in some um, city discussions about like urban planning and thinking about how how the streets are laid out and how to have that friction so that you know there's better interaction with with the space and 
and there's a reason why you don't want cars going fast because you actually mm -hmm. want them to stop to to go to the store to go to the restaurant to have that street parking to have um, lanes for for bikes so i like to see that progression there's a lot more that that kansas city can do but i think we're on the right path mm. um and i would i wish that we did have better snow removal on the missouri side so i'm not looking forward to that because <laughs> i do know that there's a very big difference when i cross that state line i live mm -hmm. really close to state line right now and it's like night and day from kansas oh, yeah. to missouri oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so i'm not excited about that part but um yeah you, I like Kansas City. You moved at a, you know, you were there at an interesting time. I moved back in two, Kansas City in 2005, and I remember clearly, like, borrowing a friend's bike and getting lost in downtown, which was a ghost town for me growing oh, up. Oh, ghost. Yeah. And, and there was this gigantic hole in the ground. I'm like, what the heck is that? Which came to be the Performing Arts Center. Yeah. And just to mm -hmm. see the development in the last 15 years compared to what it was yeah. in the 80s. Um, and really, I mean, the only reason you moved out of there to go to Kansas was for schools, right? That was the, was that the driving factor? Since to move, well, means. the only reason, I lived in Olathe um, for a hot minute mm. and I hated it. And mm -hmm. I realized that I needed to be in Kansas City. I need to be in the city, but I, you know, it's that whole thing that when you, um, I was taught when you have kids, you moved to Johnson County. So I had a kid, so I moved to Johnson County. That's what I was supposed to do. And then I realized actually there are more options. Um, there are school choices in Kansas City, Missouri and in Kansas City, Kansas, frankly. And if that's a community that you enjoy, that you should be willing to make those those changes. And I'm thrilled. Um, I'm thrilled that my daughter had the, the education she had. And I'm hopeful that my second daughter will have um, a similar opportunity so yeah, the reason why I moved back to Kansas City, Missouri was because of that school. Right. Um, but ultimately it was because I needed to mentally. Like, gotcha. I, I just could not live in the suburb. Gotcha. It's not Olathe. Sorry, gotcha. Olathe. intentionally but the music community could use could do better needs room for change is there anything specifically especially from your position i think you've got a pretty yeah. broad view well i mean to be honest i i do see myself as an outsider when it comes to the kansas city music scene there are many people i don't know i i certainly know all the people that overlap with vocal alliance so i'm i'm hesitant to give much information because I don't know a lot, but I, I will say that 
um, from what I've seen, I have seen growth over the last, you know, five, seven years in, in that community. And I think, I think the Kansas City community needs to be patient and understand that um, we're not going to magically become a music city overnight. And it's, it is a process. And, and then I think there has to be an intentional growth. I remember a conversation, um, Lewis Myers was on a panel and um, the mayor was on this panel, I think a, a long time ago. And it was, you know, will Kansas City be the next Austin? It was some type, something titled like that. And we want to be careful about things like that. Do we, I don't know if we'd ever want to be the next Austin. Um, you know, where we're, our artists wouldn't be able to afford to live there. So we need to think about uh, what this means when, when growth is occurring. But I do think that um, we need to make sure that there's engagement on a city level with um, supporting our artists. And I, I would love if Kansas City did become a music city, like from the, the music city government aspect of it um because there are there is a whole organization the music city um project I, i'm actually not sure exactly how that's titled so i think it would be good if we somehow found ways to have the city endorse that and to invest in music in the city um mm -hmm. i don't know exactly how that happens or how we move that forward though didn't the city do its own art thing. Uh, it's not, I, it's not, um, I can't remember what the name of it was, but they had like Janelle Monet and uh, the roots yeah. and all those kind of Open things. Spaces. Open spaces. Open spaces. I, I wanted to say outer spaces and I know that's, that's not it. Uh, it's close. Mayor, it's really close. Mayor James, <laughs> yeah. That would have been 2018 too. Mayor James yeah. initiative and it was supposed to take place or they're going to review it, but every other year, I believe was the initial plan. And the thing with that too, is that that seemed rushed uh, just as an outsider looking into how it happened, doing an outside stuff at Starlight in October, that's not gonna work and it didn't and they lost a bunch of money. So I'm, I'm wondering if um, how, they're, how they're viewing that now, you know, as-, as Well, like, it's a Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's a different administration, frankly, and yeah. and that was, um, I think, in part a reason why an office, the Office of Culture, I forget the name of the, the office, um, in the mayor's office was shut down this past year. It was um, funding stopped in April of 2020, mm -hmm. so the, the new mayor cut that office completely, um, which was in, back in March, I, many of us were testifying as to why why they shouldn't be cutting funding to um, to the culture office. We, Kansas City, is one of the few cities in this country that does not have a cultural office in, um, in our city structure, which is yeah. frankly, it's just shameful. Uh, mm -hmm. Culture is extremely important. Of course, then the pandemic hit and no one really knows what happened, but he cut the people, that office was eliminated, three jobs were removed. Well, one job went to um, another part of the city, but, and we do have a film office still, um, but that's it. And yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, obviously mm -hmm. clearly mistakes were made in that event and it, mm -hmm. it, as, as somebody, I could totally understand them going, well, that didn't work. We got to, 
cut this off and and try something else but um yeah i just that that whole that whole thing i i remember a, a, a year later they're like hey a bunch of people still haven't gotten paid from that event so yeah. it's like the, can't do the that open, the open spaces was actually i think about 10 weeks chris and then that was that was the culminating weekend at starlight so they had installations and exhibits all throughout the city mutual musicians foundation still has their art piece it's lovely and i'm sure we could have long conversations too about the planning process or how things were spread out but I, what i really like is hearing what Jennifer's talking about, like yeah. that need for the city yeah. to make a commitment. And I would say this extends, we talked about those with Diana last time, not Kansas City, Missouri, <laughs> Kansas. We've got so many municipalities here, it's kind of hard to connect all the dots with the state line, but making that you know intentional concerted effort to say we're behind this, when we give TIFs to corporations, that money should go towards the arts. And some of that, I'm not saying all of it, whatever, a tenth of 1%, whatever. And, you know, Jennifer, you talked about as a child, you know, having, uh, you know, arts classes in school, as mm-hmm. you know, those things have been cut. These are going to recurring themes we've been discussing. Yeah. Let me ask you, do you feel artists feel they're supported here? The ones that you're in contact with? Do you feel like they feel like they can make a living or... They have ways to be entrepreneurs. Do they feel like they need to get out of here? I think, I mean, uh, the pandemic has in many ways helped communities like Kansas City in the sense that, um, you know, I, I remember talking to a friend that moved to Nashville and discussing all the new possibilities that he has now living in Nashville because he can go to the coffee shop and run into this random person where he couldn't do that while living in Kansas city or any other city. I've had this conversation with many other people. So there's, there's that benefit, that natural benefit of being in a space like Nashville that you cannot get in Kansas city. It's just impossible. And even folk Alliance, like we can't do that. We're, we have partner organizations that are in Nashville and they're making connections that um, are much more difficult for us to make. But when we're in this year of the pandemic where this space is we're all in the same like location now we're all Mm -hmm. in this virtual world um so that's one benefit or at least like we have opportunities to take advantage of that it's it's still Mm -hmm. we're limited and and i think that's okay that we're limited we just have to be far more creative and far more intentional about how we move beyond those spaces so that we can reach people that we're not able to naturally reach by going into a grocery store or by showing up at a venue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's more challenging. It's absolutely going to be more challenging. But in other ways, it's easier. The cost of living is less expensive here. Um, you know, we have maybe travel is cheaper. You, you have to weigh those things in. But in other ways, though, I think maybe we have to be willing to reach out our networks and um, think of ways that we work with people in those music cities or, or um, cities like LA where there's a lot of publishers out there. So how, mm-hmm. how are you going to make those connections and how are you going to use those resources of people um, to make sure that you stay relevant in mm-hmm. where you want to be relevant mm-hmm. and in many ways it's more difficult to do that in kansas city it's that's just the reality yeah sure 
Well, as you mentioned too, we've got some geographical benefits and that we're, you know, in the middle, on the other hand, mm -hmm. internationally, or, you know, having those connections to some of the bigger music markets isn't always as easy. Mm -hmm. I think we've covered a lot of ground here today. I hope we haven't worn you out. That's usually our concern. Well, I just got my little alarm clock that started going off, which means I have to, this, I did not expect to be talking to you this long, but it's been a really easy conversation. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. We, but I do have to go pick up my daughter. So. Understood. Um, it's, it was, it's been an absolute pleasure. Everybody, if you haven't heard about Folk Alliance International, you need to, you need to get yourself up to speed. Jennifer, you've given us a lot of information. People can go to folk.org to find out any information about all the different programs that you offer, services, affiliates. Obviously, the, the big deal is the conference coming up from the 22nd to the 26th. Uh, as Jennifer mentioned too, everybody, you can register this year. Would you say it was 150 was like the top point to zero? Yep, 150 right? for, yep. And that's for those that work in the music industry is who should be attending the conference. Understood. And you may ask one last question is, would the plan be, because I know the plan was like every, in the five year cycle, three years were going to be Kansas City. One was going to yeah. be abroad and then another one in another city in America. Would that cycle continue? Um, so we have a three-year contract with Kansas City. The contract was 21, 22, and 24. But since 21 didn't happen, we now had 22, 23, and 24. Okay. We do not know where we're going in 25. The original intent was to go back to Canada. But honestly, it depends on financially where we are. And if we can right. afford to go back to Canada, um, mm -hmm. we, we might need to do more years in Kansas City. I just, I don't know. It depends on what um, sure. the numbers look like. That's one, one part of my job is to create the budget. Um, so uh, I'm looking Have at fun. numbers quite a bit. Have fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're glad you're soldiering on and forging ahead. Um, you, you do bring a lot of people together and I think provide a lot of education and opportunities. Uh, as you just mentioned, Calvin and Rami, it's a perfect example right there. Somebody from Egypt, somebody from Olathe uh, getting together. Um, <laughs> right. All comes back. Yeah, that's right. Chris, thanks once again for your mad skills. Um, it's been a, it's been a great episode. Kansas City, stay safe, stay strong. Peace out.